The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 72 of the Love in Action podcast, the show for leaders by leaders to help make your business and workplace be both good for people and for profits. Today, we get to talk with Jim Kuzis, one of the world's leading leadership thinkers. Jim is the co-author with Barry Posner of the award-winning and best-selling book, The Leadership Challenge, which has over 2 million copies in print. Jim is also the Dean's Executive Fellow of Leadership at Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University. Jim and Barry have co-authored many best-selling leadership books, including A Leader's Legacy, Encouraging the Heart, The Truth About Leadership, and Credibility. They are also the developers of the Leadership Practices Inventory, the best-selling off-the-shelf leadership assessment in the world, Their books are extensively research-based, and over 500 doctoral dissertations and academic studies have been based on their original work. Not only is Jim a highly regarded leadership scholar, the Wall Street Journal cited Jim as one of the 12 best executive educators in the U.S. And Leadership Excellence Magazine ranked him number 16 on its list of the top 100 thought leaders. Jim is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and honors in recognition of his and Barry's extensive body of work and the impact they have had in the workplace. Such an honor to have you join us, Jim. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you, Marcel. Thank you for that gracious introduction. It's a pleasure to be with you. Likewise, Jim. And we were talking a little bit offline about what are we grateful for? Because we always start the show with a gratitude moment. But you happen to be right now in the, literally in the middle of a firestorm with all of the brush fires in Northern California. Yes, we're surrounded. In fact, to the west is the Pacific Ocean, but north, south, and the east of where I live, within 30 to 50 miles, depending upon location, are fires. And I'm just really sad for all of our friends and neighbors and colleagues who live and work in those areas. But now a pretty resilient bunch around here. We've had them before. We'll get through this. On top of the pandemic, it's making life pretty stressful for a lot of folks. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Jim, let's get you acquainted with our listeners. You've done so much over your distinguished career. So for people just being introduced to your life's work, what would you say is your purpose, your big why? Well, if I could give a little bit of background in history to hopefully to put that into context, Marcel, if you'll permit me, I, this is my belief. I began my interest in leadership when I served in the honor guard for John F. Kennedy when he was inaugurated president of the United States. I was a Boy Scout, had achieved the rank of Eagle at age 15, was asked to be in his honor guard, and stood there in that January day watching the parade go by as the president and his family and vice president were in the right, literally right above, standing right above me. And I had at that moment decided I would take to heart the words that he said of ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Mm. 
And when I went to university and graduated years later, I uh, joined the Peace Corps. And in the Peace Corps, I was being in service to others outside the U.S. When I came back, I decided to do something similar within the U.S. So I joined a, an Office of Economic Opportunity War and Poverty Program and worked with low-income communities in the South and Southwest of the U.S. And all of that took me to Northern California, where I live now. And after being at San Jose State University for a number of years, I was asked by the Dean of the Business School at Santa Clara University to come join. And that's where I met Barry Posner. One day, this very tall guy knocked on my new office door and offered to show me around, take me to lunch, said, if there's any questions you have about working here, please ask me. I'm glad to help. And I took him up on the offer. And little did I know that that was in 1981. So uh, these many years later, 39 years later, we're still friends and co-authors and write together because we found very early on we had common interest in values and culture. And that led us to an exploration ultimately of leadership and personal best leadership practices. Did you find back then that you saw a dire need for what you've been doing for the last three, four decades where you saw, okay, no, there's a, a definite gap here that needs to be filled? We did in this sense, Marcel, thank you for that question. Because back when we started researching leadership, there was a lot of interest in corporate culture and organizational excellence. In fact, a colleague and friend of mine with whom I brought him to Santa Clara University to do an executive program was Tom Peters, and then later became president of the Tom Peters Company. And so I worked with Tom for a while. He, of course, wrote that book with Bob Waterman on In Search of Excellence. And Barry and I had the chance to work with Tom. And rather than talk about companies, we decided, well, let's talk about individual managers and what they do and how they contribute to excellence. And we invented this methodology to study that, which was called the Personal Best Leadership Questionnaire. And we found that the gap that existed at that time was talking about what individual leaders do to produce excellence. And they didn't necessarily have to be in an excellent company to do that. In fact, historically, many leaders who emerged to change the world in fact, were individuals who were in very adverse circumstances and not so excellent organizations or not so excellent circumstances. And so we tried to fill a gap around what individual leaders do and their behavior on a day-to-day -day basis that produces high levels of engagement, uh, excellent performance. Yeah, yeah. And I can't wait to dig into that. I want to really narrow down on what you found based on so much of your research and all of the data points that you've had to analyze. But first, Jim, let me do this, because whenever I get somebody like you with the vast knowledge of leadership that you have, we have so many different definitions of what leadership is. And this is an important question, because of, if you Google the word leadership, you'll get 20,000 entries. So what does leadership mean to you? Yes, you're correct. There's as many definitions of leadership as there are authors. <laughs> and so we look for the commonalities in what we're all saying. The way Barry and I have defined it, and each of the words we use means something to us, and I'll explain that, but the one sentence that we use is, leadership is the art of mobilizing others to want to struggle for shared aspirations. So if I may, let me just break that down for yeah. you. We, we chose art, while there is a lot of science to leadership, and we provide that, ultimately it's a performing art. In other words, leaders do that in front of other people or with other people. 
And so in that sense, it's a performing art. It's about what individuals do with their behavior. Mobilizing, you got to, you know, we want people to move, to act. It's not just about persuading them with ideas. It's getting them to move. And so mobilizing others and others, obviously, not just yourself, and to want to. So we look at leadership as a followership, if you will, as a voluntary act. It's not something you do because somebody's forcing you to do something. You're, doing, you're following because you want to. And so that we had to include that in our definition. To struggle, often people struggle with that word included in definition of leadership. But we looked at many different other words to use, Marcel, and we found that struggle was just for us the right word. Because when people are engaged in something that is meaningful to them, they don't always have a great time doing it. Or you think about movements like the civil rights movement or currently Black Lives Matter movement, or even during a pandemic when people are trying to do the right thing in, in order to deal with the public health tragedy and pandemic that we have. People have to struggle, they have to work hard. And, and so there's some degree of suffering going on when the cause is right and for shared aspirations, because it's about something that we all hold dear to us, a purpose, a sense of meaning that we want to move towards. So that's unpacking that definition, but the art of mobilizing others to want to struggle for shared aspirations mm. is the one sentence definition. Yeah, I appreciate that. So let's talk about the research. Now, this might not be a fair question, Jim, but I'm going to give it a try. Okay. So you've analyzed to date what you told me is over 5 million responses to your leadership practices inventory from self-assessments of leaders, and in the majority of those assessments being from people who know or have worked for those leaders, correct? Yes. We, yeah. So our data is a 360. Yeah. 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 Okay. So if you could step back from this Mount Everest of data <laughs> and boil it down to the top three lessons that you and Barry have learned over the years, maybe that's the unfair part of the question. I mean, can you actually boil it down to the top three lessons and what were they? I can do it because I want to respond to your question, but it, 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 uh, it's filled the page, you know, thousands of pages of writing. So to boil something down to three lessons is, is an unfair question, Marcel, but I will answer it. <laughs> I think the first thing is it's a set of skills and abilities. Often leadership is talked about attributes or qualities or a psychology, personality, but leadership really, when you boil it down, is a set of skills and abilities. And that's what we have studied, is those behaviors and the skills associated with those behaviors that leaders engage in in order to mobilize others to want to struggle for shared aspirations. Mm. A second important lesson that comes out of our studies is that leadership is everyone's business. Leadership is often written about and talked about, and we're as guilty of it as others, as something people with titles do. But in fact, you see it with people who don't have titles, don't have authority, don't have position. And so it's a universal set of skills and abilities. It's not just for the most charismatic people or those who are born into the right circumstances or those who went to the right schools or somehow it's genetic and they were born with a talent. It's none of those. So that's another thing. And by the way, we're coming out with a book next year that is addressing just those individuals talking about what people without titles or rank or position or authority do in order to lead others. And I think the third one that I'd add to that list 
since I'm limited to three, <laughs> is <laughs> that leadership is a relationship. It's a relationship between those le- individuals who aspire to lead and those who choose to follow. And understanding leadership requires us to also understand the relationship between leader and constituent. Okay. So one of those lessons you said, since I gave you the very unfair (laughs) disadvantage (laughs) of telling us, boiling it down to three, but one of the lessons is about skills and abilities of the leader. I wish we had a three-hour podcast to dig into what those skills and abilities are, but are there a few that really rises to the top? Well, in our research on personal best leadership practices, we asking individuals, tell us about story about the time you did your best and then analyzing those cases, creating an assessment, and then looking at, at a model that would explain all that. We came up with five. There are five practices of exemplary leadership. The first is model the way. The second is inspire a shared vision. The third is challenge the process. The fourth is enable others to act. And the fifth is encourage the heart. And within each of those, there are specific commitments and behaviors that are associated with that. But the five categories we call practices are model, inspire, challenge, enable, and encourage. Okay. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about leading in a time of crisis, especially during a pandemic. And now you have the California fires on top of that. So you have written that, and I quote, adversity is the opportunity for greatness. So would you please explain what you mean by that? Absolutely. One of the things that we discovered, Marcel, when we looked at personal best leadership experiences, is not only these practices, but the context in which they occurred. And one of the things that struck us, Marcel, was that when people were writing up about personal best, they were writing about adverse times, difficulty, challenge. And it struck us that people didn't write about keeping things the same, doing ordinary things. When asked to write about a personal best, they wrote about a challenge or adversity or or uncertainty. Literally, and we talked earlier about the tornado that you experienced, an earthquake totally destroys a company. Mm. And the personal best of the person who told us, the founder of that business, she told us it was really, you know, that was her personal best, rebuilding the company after an earthquake had destroyed it. That's a dramatic example, but others were turning around a, a factory or you know, starting up a new enterprise or in, in instituting a new change initiative, a quality initiative, for example, inside a company. All of them had to do with challenge, difficulty, adversity. And so it just occurred to us that adversity, as you have experienced, can become an opportunity for someone to do something different, something better. And so... That's why we coined that phrase, adversity is the opportunity for greatness. Adversity essentially forces you to have to deal with how you're going to do things differently than you did them before. And so when we look at whether it's the California fires, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's Black Lives Matter, social justice movement, any of these other current issues or things that we might experience on a more local level inside our organization, having to do with quality initiative or other kind of change initiative. It's an opportunity for each of us to try some new ideas, do some things differently. And when people wrote about their personal best, that's what they chose to write about. Yeah. Yeah. So not everybody is wired the same. So to me, I think that that speaks to somebody that has maybe a higher purpose inside of them. Is that something that you learn or is it something that you're born with? 
again, if you're looking at the ad- adversity and, and each specific case that we looked at initially and can all think about our own situations like this, one of the essential qualities of overcoming adversity, turning adversity into opportunity, is that you have to fully commit to something that's important. It has to be important to you and it has to be important to other people. It has to have meaning and purpose. Yeah, it's got, it's got to be bigger than yourself. Okay, so two very fuzzy words that prior to the pandemic, a lot of people have a problem with, and that's empathy and compassion. Empathy and compassion, which to me, are they're like cousins. <laughs> so what I've seen and since the pandemic is a rise in both. Talk to us a little bit about the role of each, how they play in times of crisis and adversity, especially like the times we're in now. Interestingly enough, Marcel, and I, I know you know this, in the last few years, there's been a lot of research inside organizations on empathy and compassion. We've moved from just EQ, emotional intelligence, to looking at more deeply some of the ingredients of that, and empathy and compassion have kind of risen to the top of the list of study. Does it matter if you are able to walk in someone else's shoes? Does it make a difference? Does it matter if you can display not only intellectually or emotionally understand somebody's pain, but also feel that pain and take some kind of action around that, display that, and not only I understand it, but I'm able to do something about that in relationship to your situation, show compassion. And what those who have studied this find is that those individual leaders and physicians or nurses or teachers and business people who display more empathy and more compassion are better able to walk in others' shoes and are better able to act on their understanding of others' needs, have higher levels of teamwork, have higher levels of commitment in an organization. If you're talking about healthcare and physicians and nurses, families feel like their loved one is being treated better. Outcomes are better if you look at healthcare outcomes. Yeah. And so empathy and compassion has a lot of positive outcomes. And I suppose we see more of it studied in business because business people are always interested in positive outcomes. If we have more positive outcomes as a result of this kind of treatment, maybe we ought to consider doing more of that. Yeah, yeah. So Jim, can you give us a concrete in the trenches example of something that a leader can do to actually demonstrate empathy or compassion? What does that look like? I think we have to look at micro actions when we're trying to look at a a word that is often not associated with business. So a very specific thing is simply listening. When we show compassion, when we hear other people and we hear their situation and we let them know we understand it. When we literally show up, or if you're in a healthcare context, it might be a nurse holding a patient's hand. In a business context, it might be hearing that someone's having a struggle at home and sitting down and talking with them about that and asking, is there anything we can do to help you right now? So it's those kinds of micro actions that we take. There are other things that leaders do in order to communicate their understanding of the pain that others are experiencing. You see this in the social justice movements where a lot of companies now are talking 
more actively about that, demonstrating that, hey, this isn't just an idea for protesters. This is something that's important to us in our business. And we want you to know, our customers or our employees, that this matters to us and we're acting on that. Yeah. I love this idea of elevating listening, even beyond just active listening, beyond just being present in the moment, but actually elevating it to a point where you listen with the intent of removing obstacles. So there's the compassion side, right? Removing obstacles mm-hmm. from people's paths so that they can succeed and thrive. And really, it's listening to meet the needs of others. Now I'm borrowing from servant leadership, of course. I just love that. Let's talk a little bit about exemplary leadership and engagement, what you call positive work attitudes. Give us a couple of examples of the impact leaders have on engagement at work. Sure. Be glad to. So. One of the things we do in our work in studying leadership is we have this LPI that you mentioned, Leadership Practices Inventory, and we we look at the relationship between the frequency with which leaders engage in those behaviors and certain outcome measures, which one word people use is engagement. We use positive work attitudes as a synonym for that. Things like teamwork, meaningfulness of job, willingness to put in more discretionary effort, feeling a sense of purpose at work, those kinds of measures that are pretty typical engagement measures. And just a couple of specific examples. Under Model the Way, one of the behaviors of leaders that we look at is whether that person has a clear philosophy of leadership, a clear set of values and beliefs. And when a leader very infrequently or almost never engages in that behavior, only 2%, 2% of respondents, of observers, see that leader as being effective. But when that leader does that very frequently or almost always, it's 92% hmm. of people see that leader as being effective. One other example, if you look at the behavior of a leader showing others that their personal interest can be served by enlisting in a common vision. The more frequently leaders do that, you get the same kind of outcome measures, almost never or very infrequently, 7% to 98% when people do it very frequently. And so you can see that the more frequently leaders engage in exemplary practices, the more likely it is that people will be highly engaged at work. And then when we look at out more concrete outcome measures, whether it's healthcare outcome measures or whether it's profitability, we also see the same kind of increase in those outcomes as a result of more frequent engagement in exemplary leadership practices. Thank you, Jim. Jim, I want to shift and get into a topic. It's something that I feel is a huge obstacle that gets in the way of us becoming better leaders, and that is managing through fear. And I'm going to pick your brain on this topic after this short message. So don't go anywhere. Hey, leaders and managers, Marcel here. You probably already know this if you've been following the show. The question comes up often. What's the purpose of this show? What's the why behind love and action? Well, the simple answer, we need to eliminate suffering in the workplace and help leaders to flourish. Because when we have good leaders in place, the people under their care also flourish. That 
is really good for business. And by the way, as an extension of the podcast, I launched a leadership development course. It's got a catchy name. Check it out on my website. It's called From Boss to Leader. And in this course, I teach the skills that you often hear on the show. Things like how to communicate more effectively, how to engage your employees to put out their best effort, and how to build a high-performing organization. So check it out. I'm taking calls right now, and I'd love to personally chat with you to see if this course may be a good fit. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, and click on Virtual Training. Okay, we're back. So Jim, management by fear is still such an old tactic to get people to do what you want. And you know, and maybe it works in the short term, but I personally, I don't feel it's sustainable in the long term. So why do you feel people still lead through fear and intimidation and coercion when we have the evidence? You've been doing this work uh, with your research. And the evidence is clear that leading through the principles of care and empowerment, and we, call, we hear we call it love, will get you high performance and good business outcomes. So why is it that people in positions of power still lead through fear? This is a head scratcher for me too, Marcel. I'm as puzzled as you are about why this still persists in some circles and would love to find, if there is a reason, love to find out what that reason is. But let me give you a couple of thoughts about this. Sure. And I think it largely has to do with belief. If you take the work of Carol Dweck, for example, and we've used her measures to look at leadership and the association between mindset and leadership, those individuals who express a, what she calls fixed mindset, essentially people aren't capable of changing. They are who they are. It is what it is and nothing's going to change. So why bother trying to do anything? Those people who hold the mindset called a fixed mindset, basically people can't change, they can't change their behavior, they can't change their personality, are less likely to engage in exemplary leadership practices. On the other hand, if people have a growth mindset, a belief that people can change, people can improve, they are significantly more likely to engage in exemplary leadership practice and therefore get the outcomes that we talked about. So I think Much of this has to do with belief. If you begin as a leader with a belief that people can't really change their behavior voluntarily or with some help and support, so I just have to order them around. I have to make, I have to micromanage them to make sure they do what they're supposed to be doing. There's low trust. So I think at a fundamental level, that's where this is coming from. And I have very little other way of explaining it because the evidence says otherwise. The evidence clearly says otherwise. And Barry and I aren't the only ones who find this. You can read, look at Gallup's work and you'll find exactly the same thing. You look at any other author on leadership, whether it's Adam Grant or whether it's any other author who might be writing on the topic right now, many, many others that I could name writing on this subject, find exactly the same thing. And so, Yes, it can work in the short run, but in the long run, it won't. In the long run, it won't. The other thing I think that happens is people see the behavior modeled 
And if they have worked in a business where this behavior was modeled and they see that it worked, at least in the short term, they're more likely to behave that way than if you see a different behavior model. Let me give you a specific example of that. In some recent research that was done through professor at Stanford and University of Texas, they looked at whether people would express kindness towards others if someone modeled that behavior. And in fact, you know, again, you and I would say, well, of course they will. But when people saw kindness modeled towards others, they were much more likely to model that behavior than if they saw a different behavior. So one of the practices of leaders is modeled. One of the ways we learn about how to lead is watching other people, seeing what's modeled. And if we see that behavior of fear-based leadership, fear-based management modeled, we're we may be more likely to follow that than another mm-hmm. example, which is so why it's so important to model these kinds of behaviors of yeah. kindness, respect, empathy, compassion inside organization. Yeah. I have to hold responsible the people that also reward and promote those very, very behaviors, fear and intimidation and all that, and place those people in positions of of influence and power. So the growth mindset, or perhaps they are the ones that have the fixed mindset that keep rewarding those behaviors. And so I'd like to hold the feet to the fire as well of those who keep doing that and reinforcing those negative beliefs that don't lend to creating value at work, so. Absolutely, and to reward those individuals who may have a fixed mindset, that when they do show kindness or empathy or compassion, to reward them for doing that. Yeah, yeah. So that they begin to see that there's, <laughs> there, there's you can gain something by behaving that way. You, you will be rewarded, people. Well, and re- rewarded in just any kind of financial or monetary way, but also rewarded because people will behave better. People right. will behave with more empathy themselves, more cooperation themselves. So it's a win-win. Yeah, yeah. Jim, this is a two-sided question. One side is truth, the other side is myth. Of all the things you and Barry have researched and written about, what would you say is the biggest truth and the biggest myth about leadership? Well, we wrote a book on 10 truths. So again, this is an unfair question. (laughs) 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 But, But we wrote a book called The Truth About Leadership, in which we talked about 10 truths. So in responding to this question, I'll just tell you the first one on the list. Okay. And I won't say it's the biggest, but it's one of the 10. And I think it's really, really important for people to understand. And that is you matter. You make a difference. As a leader, your behavior matters. When we look at our data and our results, and I share with you some outcome measures, just three of them, you see that when you more frequently engage in individual leadership practices, you are more exemplary leadership practices. As an individual, you are more likely to get positive results. So you matter, your behavior matters. You have an impact on other people. And just to give you an example of how important the behavior is, when we looked at the, the relationship between demographics and engagement, that is who the person is by education, by gender, by country of origin, by tenure in an organization. We looked at 10 of those individual demographic variables. 
And we looked at the impact they have, and we found that they account for only three-tenths of 1% of why people are engaged. And each one by itself accounts for next to nothing. And so then you look at the behavior, and depending upon where you do the research and whose research you follow, it accounts for anywhere between 50% and 70% of why people are engaged at work. So what's most important to understand is it's not about whether you have a PhD, whether you went to the right school, whether you live in the United States or Western Europe, or whether you live, whether you live in Asia or Australia, New Zealand, or whether you live in South America, or no matter where you live, or what your religion is, none of that matters. What matters is your behavior. Mm. So you matter, you make a difference, and it's how you behave towards others that is what matters most. So speaking of all of the behaviors and all of the leadership traits, is there one that really seems to be difficult for people to kind of internalize and carry out? The behavior which we find is the most challenging is the practice of inspire a shared vision. And more specific to that, articulating a vision of the future that in other people can enlist in. And so it's mostly not about the communication of a vision, not necessarily having a vision of the future. Many leaders can talk about aspirations for what they'd like to see, but what they find most challenging is articulating that to others in such a way that they understand, their constituents understand it and can feel like they're a part of that. Mm. Okay. Okay. Well, before we um, bring it home with our final two questions, Jim, I'm kind of curious. This whole thing for you and Barry started what, four decades ago. Has leadership changed from then to now? And should we expect leadership to change in the future? Maybe, you know, a couple of decades or more from now? The way I would answer that question, Marcel, is this, that the context of leadership has changed dramatically. Last year at this time, if you had told me that business was going to be shut down for months, that people were going to have to be wearing masks, walking on the streets or in stores, socially distancing, not going out to dinner at night, I would have said, boy, that's stuff for TV or a feature film, but that's not real life. Well, in fact, it is real life. And so contexts change, and they often change very dramatically. But what we found in our research, and we've been doing this for now over 35 years, it's really approaching more like 40 years, is that the practices and behaviors of leaders have not changed much at all. We've added to our knowledge and understanding because there's been a lot more research in the last 40, 50 years on leadership than the prior 40 to 50. But the content of leadership hasn't changed that much at all. Do I expect to see in the future there will be more understanding of exemplary leadership practices? Yes. Do I expect that we'll add two, three, or four, or five more exemplary practices on the list? I kind of doubt it. Mm. We'll enrich those. We'll come to a better understanding of them. We'll hopefully make more progress in developing leaders to be exemplary. And certainly there will be some ways in which we refine our understanding of what exemplary leadership is about. I guess I would add to that what changing of context implies is that we need to be more flexible in how we approach these situations given that. In other words, not all 
practices are equally important at any one given time. More empathy, what we call enable others to act and encourage the heart. More empathy, compassion, understanding might be more evident at a particular time, and you'll need less of something else. But for the most part, I don't expect to see significant changes in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know when I'll have you back, and hopefully I'll get you back when your next book is released. But is there any question that I didn't ask that I should have asked that, that's pertinent to this discussion? Well, I, uh, you didn't ask me the secret to success in mine. <laughs> <laughs> you want to take a whack at it? <laughs> Actually, I will, because when I was interviewing one of the first individuals for the first edition of Leadership Challenge, the person was Major General John Stanford, who was head of Military Traffic Management Command in the Western region, which was based here in Alameda, California. I sat down for an interview with him. And at the end, I said, so, General, what would you tell people, whether it's at Santa Clara University or in the military or at a corporation or healthcare organization or school system, what would you tell them is a way they can develop themselves as leaders? And he said, whenever anyone asks me that question, I tell them I have the secret to success in life. And I was intently listening. And he said, well, uh, to me, the secret to success in life is stay in love. Staying in love gives you the fire to really ignite other people, to see inside other people, to have a greater desire to get things done than other people. A person who is not in love doesn't really feel the kind of excitement that helps them to get ahead and lead others and to achieve. I don't know any other fire, any other thing in life that is more positive and exhilarating than love is. Uh, wow. I, I didn't expect to hear that from a major general, but it really put in context a lot of the other things that we had heard from people when they're talking about their personal bests, when they express something that they've really done well and they talk about it in talk about their personal best. It was very clear that they loved what they did. They loved the people they were doing it with. They loved their clients and customers. And they had the love for themselves, compassion for themselves that enabled them to continue the quest even when it was difficult. And so General Stanford really enlightened us with that comment. And Mm. it made a big impression on me. And I, to this day, remember that so vividly. Wow. And now it made a big impression on me coming from a a military person. That's really great. Well, I could end on that note right there and we would have an amazing ending. But I'm going to finish with our Final two questions, which really is about you and you end it your way. So the first question is, personally, with everything that's going on, Jim, and you you shared with me, you got fires only 30 miles away in the Northern California area. So what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? What's really tugging at my heart right now is the condition, not just of the pandemic or the fires or the social movement that's happening, but the divisiveness we are experiencing right now in this country, and to some extent in other parts of the world, where some leaders are intentionally trying to divide us rather than unite us. And that just goes against everything that I have worked for my entire life. And my parents taught me, who were very active in the early days of the civil rights movement when I was a kid. And so that really upsets me, and I intend to do everything I personally can to make sure that we don't continue that. Mm. Well put. Thank you for that. And I'm going to give you the honor of closing us out with one thing, one final takeaway that we can 
bring home with us to make a difference in our lives? Well, I would add that you can't do it alone. I couldn't have written the first book, let alone all the others, without my co-author, Barry Posner, without the support of my family and friends, without the love and care of my wife. And I don't think any leader can accomplish anything by him or herself. So understand that leadership is not a solo performance. Leadership is a team effort, and you can't do it alone. Fantastic. Jim, if people want to connect with you and find out more about your work, Barry's work, where can they go? Well, leadershipchallenge.com is our website where you can look at our offerings and learn more about us and read a blog and sign up for the blog if you choose to. And then uh, I'm Jim at Kuzis.com and you can send me a note. Fantastic. And Jim, I'm going to be praying for you that those fires don't come anywhere near your house, your neighborhood, your city. Having survived a tornado a couple of months ago, yeah, we, we want our families to be safe. So that's my thoughts and prayers for you as you Thank deal you, with, with this right now. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an my, honor. My to pleasure, Marcel. It, right. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Marcel. All the best my, to you. Thank you so much, Jim. So my special thanks to Jim Kuzis for joining us. And thank you, our listeners, for engaging the conversation and spreading the love and action movement. We would be grateful if you could share it with others. If you'd like to visit the archives to the show and, and dig in to other conversations that we've had with some of the world's top thought leaders, visit my website at marcelschwantes.com and click on the Love in Action tab. Finally, if you or your company would like to sponsor episodes of the Love in Action podcast, well, let's chat. You can reach me on my website or hit me up on my LinkedIn profile or email me personally at marcelschwantes at gmail.com. I'd be delighted to have a conversation about sponsorship. Next week, I sit down with author, speaker, coach, Ale Hunkins to discuss his latest book, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. Until then, don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it and be convinced. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. 